Hello and welcome to another edition of Pacific Post-Ups, or should we just rename it, the Western Conference Finals. Nick Boylan, how are you? Yeah, good man. Uh, as you said, it's um, the, the main discussion at the moment, obviously, is uh, on what's happening in the in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, super exciting um, basketball that they're playing at the moment. And uh, yeah, this series um, with the Clippers and the Suns has, has got off to a pretty interesting start. Yes. Uh, now, as you ever so softly alluded to there, there is some small going on in the division that aren't just game related at the moment. We will touch on a on the Warriors and the Kings draft picks a little bit later. But uh, to start by taking a dip here, um, that game two in Phoenix, Nick, that Jay Crowder pass, the uh, the DeAndre Ayton alley-oop, the valley-oop as they're calling it. What did you make of everything that we saw in game two? It was a, it was a pretty wild finish um, the last two minutes, or should I say three hours of that game. Um, I was getting really worried that it was going to get uh, wrecked by some... Uh, people who um, don't wear Phoenix or LA Clipper jerseys. Um, but thankfully, uh, you know, we got an actual basketball play to finish the game. And yeah, it was just, it was just a roller coaster of a game. You know, the Suns started pretty well, um, you know, punctuated by the guy who, who, who made that game winning dunk um, off the alley-oop in DeAndre Ayton. I thought he was fantastic um, right from the, right from the first tip. Um, particularly when Booker was struggling and how well the Clippers sort of held him up, uh, but though not when it when it mattered with uh, that late jump off that he seemed to hang in the air for an infinity, um, really just to sort of uh, get over Pat Bev's outstretched hands who played a really good game, actually. We'll probably touch on that a little bit later, but um, I thought his minutes were really fantastic for LA. But yeah, it, it, was, a, it was a pretty wild game. Like every time... You know, sort of the Suns seemed to get a run on. The Clippers had hit a couple of big shots to just to cut it back to, you know, three points, four points, and always stay in touch. And then late in that second corner, Phoenix really, I thought that was a, a period of time where they really missed Chris Paul. Uh, they started to get a little bit chaotic with their ball movement, uh, just flinging it around to the point where it was just like, all right, they need to sort of take a chill here because the Clippers were going up the other end and scoring a little bit easier. So it was a really interesting game to watch, um, you know, with campaign just going absolutely bonkers. Um, you know, his energy really is a barometer for this squad, I think. And um, and then things got, you know, really interesting late. Yeah. Um, you touched on a, a ton of good points there. And, and perhaps the best one to start with uh, is the frustrating uh, period of time there with the referees, as well as, having a seemingly endless replays uh, at the end of the games. Uh, do you think there's something the league could potentially be doing here, or do you think this is just a position where we're stuck in and these kind of reviews are going to have to wait till the end of the season? Yeah, it. a couple of them were really ridiculous. I mean, the one that probably is sort of got the most chat maybe was that out-of-bounds call um, that ended up being called off... Um, um, off Phoenix after Bev knocked the ball out of Booker's hands. It was like I understood the logic of what was going on with that. But at the same time, uh, at the same time, it was like, well, how many times do an out, does an out-of-bounds play happen where the ball is knocked out of someone's hands and technically you could call it back because that's the last person who touched the ball. But that happens all the time. Like it didn't need a complete, you know, 
five minute review period where the game was stopped. You know, it kill it kills time, it kills the atmosphere and the momentum of the game. And then you look at the flip side of it, it was something that they talked about uh, quite a bit on the broadcast. Is the amount of times that reviews happened, it gave both coaches extra timeouts when they'd actually run out of timeouts. You know, do, does Monty Williams, you know, are Phoenix able to to get that win? Um, you know, without having that time to draw up the play, who knows? So I never like it in any sport that referees have so much impact on the game and influence. And Scott Foster is certainly known for doing that. And yeah, it, it certainly was quite frustrating. Yeah. I think you, you just touching on that comment you made about that specific out of bounds call. Um, and it's certainly something that I think a lot of people have had a similar kind of thought about. It probably stemmed from the fact that, look, when the great man, uh, James Naismith himself, was picturing men putting basketballs in cane baskets, that those kind of rules were written in under the spirit of, you know, hey, that's off the person that's made the, the poke away, not the person that technically last yeah. touched the ball. And, and it's going to be so tough because any amendment to that rule opens up a very broad scope for the out-of-bounds rule to just kind of get a bit out of hand. But maybe there needs to be a conversation uh, at the at the high level with refereeing about not reviewing those. I mean, the referees have the choice to review. They don't have to review it. Um, mm. And just because Pat Bev uh, moves his fingers around in a circle doesn't mean you, you have to go upstairs for it. But it, it does put them in a tough spot. And um, whilst I'm not a big fan of Scott Foster and some of the other things that took place throughout the course of the game, I will say that it does put the referees in a tough spot uh, when the players ask for a review because if they don't go on and review it, then they're also open to scrutiny as well. So certainly something to look in, I think, probably at the end of the season. Um, to make a change now, I, I don't think it's practical. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it is a frustrating part of the game. And I even just look at it from a consumer's perspective that, you know, you like to know when you sit down to watch a game of what whatever sport you're choosing to watch that you have a rough idea of the time frame of it and there's kind of nothing worse than a, you've allotted kind of two and a half hours for an NBA game and you're sitting there three and a half hours later and the game's still going. Um, so that's something they do need to fix, and I think we've been talking about that for a while now. Yeah, it, the, the parameters around when and when a review should take place definitely will change, I think, a little bit. I'll be interested to see exactly how it does change, but it's definitely a discussion that needs to happen. But as you said, after the season, so I'm, yeah, it, hopefully we don't get too many more of these these games that do stretch out and you're sort of sitting as just like, all right, you're texting your next plans. It's just like, sorry guys, the last quarter is taking three and a half hours um, to finish up. I know these are small things, but you know, considering the NBA is so, you know, focused on a, a on a product for consumers in, in terms of their audience, it, it is something they need to look at um, to fix that up. But, you know, d- despite those things happening, I mean, it was still, you know, really exciting into the game. Um, thanks to that play um, from from Crowder to Aiden and getting getting that little bit of a depending on who you ask, a, a legal or a legal screen um, from Booker. But you know, it, it was a, it was a bit of a slog of a last quarter. You know, that both both teams were, were jacking up threes at one stage and just missing threes. Like the the play by play, it was you know, like Phoenix player missed three, Clippers player missed missed three and it just kept going until the timeout was caused. It's like, all right, we need to sort of scrap this, but yeah, I mean, probably the the thing I'm interested to hear your thoughts about lose is like, do you really, is, is that game two result, particularly with what happened, particularly with how a few Clippers played in, in terms of shooting the ball, 
do you think it's really panic station so far um, for LA? Oh, look, I don't. Um, now, transparently, I, I've got, as most people would, I've now got Phoenix to go ahead and win this series. But I, I do think that the Clippers, if you look at the, the Phoenix bench, um, you know, Cam Johnson was really effective. Uh, Cam Payne was even more effective. And then you look at the other side of the box score and you go, okay, well, the Clippers really aren't playing up to their maximum potential. I mean, Paul George made his first three with like three minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And so I think the Clippers have got a lot more to give here. Um, and I also think we've seen Ty Lue throughout this playoffs and many other playoffs before. He's a He warms into a series. Um, he's not afraid of going down 0-2. And he's not afraid of kind of a, a trial and error approach to his rotation. So I do think the Clippers have got at least one last swing. Um, that being said, the Suns grab the next game. And, and I, it's fair to say it's, it's all said and done because no one comes back from 3-0. Yeah, particularly if Paul is coming back, as as what reports are sort of indicating that that happens. That, you know, that people are talking about if Kawhi is coming back, you know, that it will completely swing the series around. It's very different a player coming back from some, you know, COVID uh, health and safety protocols versus someone who's potentially done an ACL. Um, so even if Kawhi does come back, it, it'll be like James Harden's first game back on his hamstring. Like it, it, it it's probably not going to look that great. And I'm not sure if Kawhi does give it a go, particularly with the nature of that injury being a more structural structural one rather you know, than compared to a hamstring. Um, it will be really interesting to see what they do with Kawhi. If he's remotely close to giving it a go, do they do it? Um, or, or do they see what happened when Anthony, Anthony Davis gave it a go and they, you know, they sort of say, okay, you know, it's up to PG um, and the rest of the crew to to try to get us back in this series. Um, so that'll be an interesting storyline to to sort of keep an eye out for. But yeah, I don't think it's. I mean, I'm still picking Phoenix quite strongly, um, which I'll sort of get into in in the takes later. But yeah, I mean, you know, Morris going three three of eleven, it, it, it makes things really really tricky for them. Um, obviously, Paul George not having the best shooting night, as you said, hit that three very very late in the game. Finished the game okay, aside from the free throw line, which has uh, had a lot of people uh, bringing up their old sort of pandemic P, playoff P uh, discussions. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there was enough in that Clippers uh, from the Clippers' performance that shows they could probably pinch a win um, in 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 um, at LA and to try to at least get some home court advantage going again, square things up at two two and see what happens. I, but. At the same time, I think that Phoenix are now starting to expose a couple of pretty major flaws of what they can do. And I think DeAndre Ayton sort of chief among the, you know, the the cause of um and I guess of the exposure of those flaws because I think he's he's been terrific to start this series. Yeah, and Ayton actually uh I heard an interesting debate the other day about who would you take for the next five years out of out of Ayton and Gobert. And I guess what mm. Ayton's been able to do in this series is you can't just go small. You can go small against Phoenix. That's fine. But if you go small against Phoenix, you have to accept that, that Aiton's got, you know, a couple of dribbles and a jump hook. Um, he's got a pretty good set of hands on him. He can actually punish you a lot more offensively if you go small. Um, and then when you go to that matchup with Zubac, it's like, well, I mean, Aiton's kind of just like a far, far more advanced version of, uh, of King Zubs. So he's, he's actually creating the perfect kind of storm uh, to unravel the Clippers here as far as he can kind of kill you if you go small, but 
you're not really breaking even on that Zubac versus uh, versus Aiden minutes as much as I'm I'm pro Zubac. So he's been fantastic. Uh, Aiden's been fantastic. Um, and I will say this: he's made himself a lot of money uh, in this postseason when it comes to extension time for DeAndre Aiden because he's pretty much no doubt a max guy now in my mind. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know. Around all the discussions that you know, obviously with Trey Young lighting things up um, for Atlanta at the moment, you know Luca's, um, you know, continual push to sort of, you know, getting closer to almost like an MVP level campaign. It's Aiton's really sort of crept up slowly, and he's he, now he's with, you know, with, with Luca not there, um, Trey obviously in the other side of things. He's really taking this, you know, this Western Conference final stage and. You know, proving that he, he was deserving of that selection. Um, you know, ho- hopefully it's something that um, Golden State fans can probably maybe take a little bit of solace in that, you know, Wiseman can hopefully at least continue that sort of development, even if he's probably not the player that Aiton is. There's a lot of differences in their game. But yeah, it's just really fantastic to see. And I, I guess the it, it is interesting the discussion with him and Gobert because. I mean, probably the difference is in Phoenix is that the guards aren't afraid to pass him with the ball, uh, which does help. Um, there was, I think, a tweet that Rudy Gobert did like um, on Twitter today or yesterday, and I think it was a, about something similar about having having the, the guards pass him the ball. So um, it's always been an interesting discussion, I think, with um, his fit in the offense and his demand for more and, you know, potentially comes back to those rifts between him and him and Donovan Mitchell, although they're probably buried the hatchet to a degree on a personal level, um, on a basketball level. Um, potentially, Gobert's Go still got those, uh, I guess, you know, those concerns about where he, where he fits into things. But, um, you know, this isn't a uh, this isn't a Utah Jazz podcast. I could talk about them all day. But, um, I mean, the other couple of interesting things I thought in the last quarter is, is Ty Lue's sort of uh, experimentation with the lineup. You know, we saw our guy Zubes get, play 34 minutes um you know Patrick Beverly I thought he that was probably one of his best games in a very very long time um with how well he was able to just uh restrict Devin Booker both with his hands and his head um and as well um Canard's little cameo late um when they really needed some points to get going um you know he was able to to provide that so It'll be really interesting to sort of see how much Ty Lue sort of flips things around in the next couple of games. Um, Lou, do you think there's anything that you would particularly change if you were in the in the coaching seat for the Clippers? So I, I think there's a couple of things to kind of take into consideration. Um, I don't think Marcus Morris has been 100% healthy to start this series. Um, there's been some whispers coming out that he wasn't 100% healthy in that game six against Utah now as well. Uh, and it's very possible that that's affecting his ability to play effective minutes on the court. Now, I don't know what is exactly going on with Marcus Morris and whether it's just a niggle that he's going to slowly work back from. I can't imagine it's anything too horrific. Otherwise, I think there'd be some clearer reporting. Um, but that, that might, obviously, that's not a specific change. But if, if you can get Marcus Morris back to 100%, that does change things a lot because he's a guy that you can afford to have out there defensively and a guy that helps you offensively with his spacing. And he's kind of their small ball five, per se. Um, I guess the biggest look, the biggest dilemma for me, uh, as far as I put myself in Ty Lue's seat, is you're watching Luke Kennard play, and you go, "Geez, he brings so much offensively." Um, he's just he's getting killed on the defensive end, and what I don't quite understand with him is, look, I know he's not a hyper athlete, but I, I'm not sure if it's just a lack of mental awareness or 
he doesn't apply himself enough on the defensive end. I'd be really disappointed if it's a lack of effort um, because he's a guy that I think gives him extra juice as an actual creator. He can run, we discussed it before, he can run some pick and roll, he takes the ball out of PG's hands for a bit. Um, and I, I think that he's kind of the, he would be the key there because I, I think what we're starting to see with PG now is after, you know, five games of having to carry the team offensively, you know, and, and a bunch of role players, I think his shooting is going to start to struggle more and more. Um, so I think Tyloo needs to find a way to funnel the ball out of PG's hands. Uh, and it can be within mind to get it back into his hands to finish plays. Um, and, you know, I know Paul George joked about he didn't like being used like Ray Allen last year under Doc Rivers, but I think it would actually do some good for PG to get off the ball a little bit, mm. um, find his rhythm, and then the ball can be in his hands down the stretch. So, uh, look, activating Canard's probably the way to do it. Um, but that presents a, an issue defensively. And uh, I'll also touch on it more later, but I, I think I'm done with boogie minutes as well. Yeah, the the, the Cousins minutes are a, are a whole thing. Um, but they, you're right. They do need to find a way to live with Canard being out there a little bit longer simply for how much he can provide on the offensive end. Not only, obviously, he's an incredibly talented shooter and someone who's, you know, who's going to confidently score the ball, which is important in Leonard's absence. It's important if Morris is struggling with a bit of an injury and, you know, if Terrence Mann sort of come back down to earth after his monster 39-point game, it's they need someone who's going to go get their own shot, um, you know, outside of George and, and Reggie Jackson. So whether, you know, they sort of go with a more defensive lineup and then just sort of feature um, Kennard and George a little bit more try to hide him a little bit on the defensive end, do what you can there. Um, although teams have been very good at sort of, uh, you know, exposing him on the defensive end, you know, getting him in pick and rolls, which really what the Phoenix did so well is just absolutely kill um, the Clippers with that one five pick and roll um, campaign was, was awesome out there. Certainly has uh, spent enough time uh, this year um, watching uh, Chris Paul from the sidelines and, and picking up, um, you know, that sort of ethos, and in mentality. Um, so, yeah, they, they need to get Canard out there some way um, to give him a little bit more juice if, you know, Leonard's not going to be back for the series, which is looking like you know, a, probably a, a more likely prospect than not. Um, but, yeah, they, they, Tyler needs to do something for, um, for the next couple of games. Otherwise, the series is going to slip away pretty quickly. You actually bring up a good point, and, and obviously you discussed everything campaigns brought to the table, and, look, he's been fantastic. Um but I mean, if if the if the Suns are making it such an emphasis point when Canard's out there pretty much every time to get his man into a screen, get Booker onto Canard, and just like when they got when the Jazz got Donovan Mitchell onto Canard, uh, or when the Mavs got Luka Doncic onto Canard, it, it it's pretty much lights out. I, I do now wonder um, whether perhaps you know when you are running the offense through Paul George, whether the Clippers could be doing more to be getting uh, campaigns man involved in screening action. Um, obviously, Paul George with a substantial size and athleticism advantage in that kind of matchup. Because if they're going to go at your, you know, uh, ball handler off the bench, offensive spark plug guy, and you're the Clippers, why can't you do the same back to the Suns? Mm. Um, but that's something for, for Ty Lue to kind of look into. And I, I'm very, very keen to see what he does do here because I, I certainly know, and we've seen it already throughout this playoffs, Ty Lue's not going to come out with the exact same game plan. Um, I've no doubt we'll see something different from him in game three, and he's probably going to push his chips all into the table. So certainly one to keep an eye on. Do you think that he'll go 
back again with a, a heavy, um, heavy diet of Zubat's minutes and a very slim amount of Nick Batum minutes? Or do you think that things will flip around a little bit more to try to go potentially a little bit smaller again? I'll be honest. I think that depends on the health of Marcus Morris. I think if they feel comfortable playing Morris at the five, frees you up to play Batum at the four uh, and go the super small lineup um, variations of which gave the Jazz headaches. Um, but I, I think that that all depends on the health of Marcus Morris because I don't think Batum at the five is necessarily the greatest fit. Um, I, I think there's just a little bit too much size there with Aiton. Not that you couldn't run it in spots, not that you can't run it when Saric is out there, but I, I honestly think that might come down to how Marcus Morris feels more than anything. Um, but I do think if Morris is healthy and ready to go and ready to play minutes at the five, you will see a switch back to a little bit more of that smaller lineup. Yep. Um, so I guess uh, moving over to Phoenix before we discuss the Warriors and the Kings, um, is there anything you've seen in particular from Phoenix that you think is kind of working for them uh, that, the, that the Clippers uh, really can't find an answer for or that might translate in a potential finals matchup for the Suns? I mean, the the pick and roll with Aiton, I think, is the one that's really wrecking the Clippers at the moment. We sort of talked about how well he's going against bigs and smalls um, for uh, Phoenix at the moment. There hasn't, I mean, I think a lot of it, I think it, what, what I'm probably more interested to see how they go on the road is just Phoenix's energy. I think that that's something that they've, rode pretty well um, when they've been playing at home. And I think Payne's sort of been the you know generator of that, the way that he plays um, with that real, real sense of aggression, look, looks for his shot in a confident but not like completely o- overzealous sense. Um, it's not, it's not like a, it's not like a Jamal Crawford, J.R. Smith hunting shot. Um, I think that his sort of uh, aggressiveness is really what's driving Phoenix at the moment. When they've really had, you know, like Booker's been well held um, by Beverly in that game. I think it'll be interesting to sort of see what they do. Um, if if Ty Lue continues to go with that and give Beverly uh, heavy minutes, um, what can Phoenix do to try to free Booker up a little bit more? Um, particularly, um, you know, if the Clippers get on a roll a little bit um, when they're playing at home. So in terms of, yeah, I guess like what Phoenix are doing well, I think it's just that they're able to play their brand, I think, fantastically. They've been able to move the ball. They're getting solid contributions from a a lot of guys. Haven't had a lot of scoring from, you know, didn't have a lot of scoring from Bridges in that game or Crowder. Um, So if they're able to get games where those guys are having quiet ones, Booker's had a a tough night shooting five or 16 from the floor. I think that that bodes well for what they can do. Um, but certainly, you know, if, if those guys can get hot again from, from deep, uh, things will get a little bit easier for Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, they, they, Phoenix do certainly rely on those three and D guys and their, and their spark plugs off the bench um, for so much energy, particularly with uh, Chris Paul out. Although obviously with talks of Chris Paul returning, um, the guy, the, the roles of guys like campaign become ever so slightly less important, but look, it's the old adage in the playoffs that role players don't shoot as well on the road. Um, so it's a great chance for those Phoenix bench guys and the, and the role guys to come out and, and prove that they're uh, they're better than that standard um, when they get to go to Staples, and they certainly have a chance here in Game Three to to pretty much put the series away, um, and uh, that would be such a big thing for this franchise. So uh, yeah, I guess we'll certainly keep a close eye on that. Um, moving out of the playoffs, 
and into the lottery. Uh, we had the draft lottery the other night, uh, and your Golden State Warriors came away with the came away with two picks, and of course the Sacramento Kings have their first round pick. What did you make of uh, the way that all shook out, particularly for the Warriors, Nick? Yeah, obviously I would have liked that uh, that Minnesota pick potentially to, to go a little bit higher. Obviously not too high, otherwise uh, Golden State wouldn't have kept it. But um, the, you know, the reality was uh, it was an out uh, potential outcome that they. Minnesota would have kept that pick. Um, they haven't. It does translate um, over to Golden State, so that's a big win for them. Um, yeah, obviously, you know, if the pick was... It seems to be, at least sort of listening to draft experts, that there's a very much a strong consensus sort of top four, and then there's a rung below that that's probably a, a few picks, and then sort of seven through 12 maybe is like another rung below that. So obviously being in that, you know, a, a higher tier, tier of talent um, would have been preferable but um you know there's there's going to be some pretty good options at um at pick seven for for golden state you know guys like uh davion mitchell sort of seems to be one of the guys out of baylor um who um a lot of the draft um experts are are, um, thinking that could be a good fit um in a golden state uniform um you know someone who can sort of come off the bench and provide really good defense which is something the bench unit lacked um in, in this season um, someone could go on as a scorer, plays a bit of a combo guard, so you could play him, you know, sort of backing up Steph or potentially with Steph. Um, so I like that move. Then you got scorers, you know, guys like uh, James Booknight, Moses Moody, um, who'd be okay fits. Whether Corey Kispert um, from Gonzaga, the you know probably the consensus best shooter in the draft, could slide down there as well. You know, everyone knows that Golden State need more shooting. Well, they go a more mature player like Chris Duarte um, as well. So. There's options there for Golden State, but at both seven and fourteen, I think it's just the interesting part is that you know whether they're actually going to pick there or they're going to are they going to trade for somebody. Yeah, I mean it's funny because obviously some of the names you just mentioned there, um, you say you know Davion Mitchell. Uh, while I like the idea of going for an older guy for Golden State, um, it, 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 where he fits in a Curry. Clay, and I'm actually going to consider Jordan Poole as well because he was good enough to deserve consideration. Rotation is an interesting concept. Um, and I guess a lot of that hinges on what we think Clay is coming back from injury. Uh, obviously, traditionally, Clay was was more of a two that could play a bit of three um, pre-injury. If he slows down ever so slightly and with the game getting kind of smaller, is he really a three now when he comes back? Um I like the idea of uh, Kispert uh, and the thought of him and Clay on opposing wings, both wearing headbands, both jacking up threes, has a certain uh, visual appeal to it. But I guess I'm just interested from your perspective, and I know we say draft for best pick available and don't so much worry about position, but if there's one position of need for the Golden State Warriors, is it is it a three? Is it a two? What is Draymond ideally? Is he your four? Is he your five? I mean, when you've got guys like... Jokic to go through, you know, these are all the questions, I guess. So what do you think the, the big, biggest position of need is for Warriors? Uh, well, it, it's going to kind of depend on who's available, I think, because I think if Scotty Barnes is still available at seven and they have a real think about getting him in the door, obviously not a shooter, but someone who can, you know, play a good amount of minutes at the four. I kind of like the idea of Draymond at the five and, and Barnes at the four in some uh, late game situations. Um, but I do think that, Scoring and shooting is uh, a massive need for the Dubs at the moment. Whether that's someone that, you know, depending on how Clay's going, is going to play some more minutes late. 
but the reality is that the Golden State depth um, was something that was you know not as strong as it used to be. Um, you know they've got some they've got some solid players there. You know and the likes of Damian Lee, Jordan Poole really came on leaps and bounds. Uh, Juan Toscano, Anderson. Eric Pascal, these are good players, but they need something more of a punch out of that bench unit. So I think guys, you know, who are they're not they're not going to be afraid to sort of take someone who's maybe a little bit older. I think particularly at that pick fourteen, a guy like Chris Duarte um, is someone who I really like. Um, and just get some knockdown shooters um, to surround um, with, with this team because we saw in a lot of late game situations that the spacing on Golden State was not what it used to be, particularly with with without Clay there. So I think that that's, that's going to be the option. But I think, the, yeah, well, the other option is whether they sort of package these picks. Um, does James Wiseman get moved? Is Wiggins on the move? Do they try hard to go and get, you know, uh, an all-star caliber type of player? To, you know, what's enough to get Bradley Beal out of Washington? Um, you know, are they looking at a Ben Simmons, which I'm not sure on on that fit from a basketball sense of view, but particularly if Ben Simmons and Draymond Green are on the court at the same time. I don't think the spacing is uh, elite um, by any stretch, but they got options, I think, Golden State, and I'm very interested to see what they do. But I, I think that the most important thing for them at the moment is drafting someone who's ready to help now um, rather than in two or three years. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting, obviously. I mean, just quickly touching on it, I don't think you can have Simmons and Draymond on the same court. Um, but uh, unless one of them rediscovers and or discovers shooting ability. Um, but I, I think, it, look, something tells me a trade is brewing with Golden State. Um, I, I think, I don't know how much Steph is getting a say in these front office decisions, but I think if you said to him, look, do you want to run it back with this lot plus Wiseman, plus a 7th and a 14th pick. Um, are you kind of happy with that? I think the answer would be no. Um, I think if you gave him the option to kind of turn that, plus Wiseman or Wiggins or Oubre in a sign-and-trade um, into some sort of asset that he could use, you know, a veteran that's, that knows what they're doing, I think that would certainly be the case. So, so I suspect unless the Warriors think there's a franchise, future franchise player waiting for them at 7, um, that they might uh, might make the the draft pick with the idea to trade it, but I also know that you know, and we saw this with what happened with D'Angelo Russell, and obviously there was conversations about them trading Wiseman this year. I certainly don't think the Golden State front office is going to rush to make a trade if they don't like what's on the table. I think they've shown time and again that they will wait um, until they feel like the offer is maximised. Now, waiting on Wiseman might have cost them, and it might continue to cost them. We'll have to wait and see, but I don't think the Warriors are going to force anything. Yeah, I, as you said, um, Bob Myers is the type of guy who's, yeah, they're not going to just rush to make a trade for the sake of making a trade. So they'll have guys they like at pick seven um, and guys at pick 14 who I think they can think help. Uh, you know, Bob Myers said that, you know, for the option is to, to, to take two rookies onto the roster next year because they were asked basically, are Draymond, Clay and Steph all right with this? And it's just like, Kind of yes, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> how honest that is, but I do like the idea of acquiring a shooter in the draft. Whether that's someone who's probably more available at pick 14, you know, getting someone who's might not be as have the offensive upside of a guy like I don't know James Bootnight or Davion Mitchell and these sort of guys, you know, if they can get you know just a more sort of restricted 
knockdown shooter who's going to be comfortable in the space that he will get in Golden State and can hit the corner threes that they might have struggled to get um, with the roster as it was constructed this season. So, yeah, oh, oh, I'm, I'm really not sure. There's not a lot of guys who I think are super available. People were talking about, you know, if Golden State would try to trade for someone like CJ McCollum. Not really sure about that. Um, the Simmons one... The spacing, yeah, would be weird. As much as I like the idea of Simmons hurtling down the court with Curry and Clay in each corner, that sounds great in practice, but uh, in theory, but not sure in practice. So, and then the other one, I think they got rumored as well was whether they have a crack at trying to get another big guy like Miles Turner. So, I'm not, a, I'm not. None of those moves really scream to me like they are the move to make and do everything you can to make that move. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the, what the discussions uh, eventuate to over the next couple of weeks and, and, and the months leading up to the draft. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. The, the Miles Turner one is probably more on that realistic level as far as not going all in with all your assets. Um, and I don't entirely hate that if that was something like, you know, Ubre, Pascal maybe, and, a, and one of those picks or something. But at the end of the day, it's not – I wouldn't force it. Um and like we just kind of said, I don't see the Warriors forcing it either. So um, the, obviously the other Pacific Division team to come out of the draft lottery there was the Sacramento Kings. Um, another crucial draft year for them. Uh, I think the clock is ever so slowly starting to tick now uh, with Darren Fox. And you got Marvin Bagley on Twitter liking tweets about getting him out of there. Um, so the pressure is starting to build a little bit in Sacramento. Uh, but I guess we won't hit on that too much because I know you have a quite a firm take coming on that one down the line. Uh, actually, that might be the place to uh, to begin with scorching, lukewarm or chilly. Uh, Nick, you do have a Sacramento take. It is trade-related. Would you like to fire away? I would. Um, I do believe that uh, with that ticking clock, as you mentioned in the playoff drought uh, continuing to grow with every year, that the Sacramento Kings should pursue a trade for Ben Simmons. I'm just going to pause on on rating the take. Give give me your rough outline of a theoretical Ben Simmons Sacramento trade package, and and then I'll uh, then I'll hit you with a rating. So I think that I'm not sure if it will have to involve this year's pick or potentially a future first pick. Um, but I think they should be trading Marvin Bagley. DeLon Wright, I think, is needed in there to make the money work and Buddy Heald um, across um, to the 76ers uh, in exchange for Ben Simmons and whether there needs to be another player thrown in like a George Hill or something like that to make the money work. Um, but from the Sacramento side, that those three players are sort of what I'd be looking at plus a pick. Hmm. Um... I think uh, I think lukewarm. Um, I, I've heard little kind of sniffs around Sacramento and Ben Simmons. Truth be told, I think Clutch would be probably working quite hard to <laughs> he doesn't end up there. Um, yes. And the, I actually, this thought crossed my mind um, when I was thinking about Ben Simmons' trade locations and, and him in Sacramento. So much of it comes down to what sort of shooter De'Aaron Fox turns into. Um, if Darren Fox can be a 38% guy off the dribble and a 40% guy off the catch, I'm concerned less about the catch, then him and Ben Simmons' pick and roll would be lethal with uh, with Simmons rolling hard to the rim, um, surrounded them by a couple of shooters. 
But if De'Aaron Fox is going to be a, a, an under-the-screen kind of guy and Ben Simmons is going to be a no-way-you-respect-him-on-the-pop kind of guy, then that pick-and-roll loses a lot of its threat. Um, but I do think Sacramento need a shake-up. So I absolutely love the idea of a, of trading uh, for Ben Simmons. Although the Marvin bagley Joel and Bede fit is somewhat curious. Yeah, that, that's probably, the I guess, the, the interesting one and whether the Philly are sort of that keen on whether they're just shoring up their bench with Marvin Bagley. Is Bagley someone who then will get flipped again um, in a in a successive trade? Um, that's probably the interesting part about it. It's, but yeah, I think I, I do like the idea of Simmons in Sacramento. That you know, as I said, that they, they need to they need to make a move to do something um, to to sort of get the ball rolling a little bit quicker than it is right now. So, I think that. Having Simmons out there, probably playing more of a of a power forward position with Fox and Halliburton and Barnes in there as well. If they, you know, they're bringing whether Holmes is coming back or not, um, I, I kind of like that idea of a starting five, like getting into the play-in tournament. I think that's um, a, a team that you wouldn't mind watching. But yeah, as you said, it depends what the off season looks like for both Fox and Simmons to see what work they bring into the next season. Um, Obviously, we could probably talk about we could talk about Ben Simmons for about two hours, um, and what his off season should look like, and what reports are saying it might not look like, um, and not not pulling on a certain green and gold jersey. But um, I don't mind it. And then, then for Philly side things, I think Delon Wright um, is someone who can help him out um, off the bench, um, potentially. Oh, starting's probably a, a strong term, but he probably you know he could spot start. I, I've I'm a big fan of DeLon Wright and sort of what he can do. And then Buddy Heald as well just gives them another scorer, um, someone who can be, you know, really lethal from the perimeter. The fit for him in Sacramento is just, it, it's not really there anymore considering how well that Halliburton's kicked on after, you know, it, how how fantastic of a rookie season he had. So that's the future backcourt. Heald as your, as your future small forward, I don't think is, is the move. Um, and I think that, yeah, getting him out of there is probably um, what what should happen. So, yeah, getting Simmons in Sacramento, it's it's not too glamorous of a move, as you said, that I don't think his agent's going to be that crash hot about, regardless of the fact he's in California. It's, you know, probably not the California um, where they <laughs> part of California that they want him. But, yeah, I think this is a good move for both sides. Um, whether it's something that happens, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and you do raise a good point there. Is that, look, it's very, very clear Bagley needs out of Sacramento. Um, and Heald needs out of Sacramento purely so he can kind of get out of Halliburton's way is a nice way to say it. Um, and Heald, I mean, if Heald would fit anywhere perfectly, it would be in Philly. Uh, I think I'd much prefer to see Philly kind of do the four shooters around and bead and die trying approach now. I, I think the additions of, of extra of extra playmakers or guys like Simmons or defensive guys around and bead We've seen different variations of that. It's not quite going to get you over the line. Um, so this is a classic example of two teams that really need to shake up. And look, the semantics of, of how the trade would go down, I think you could argue. Um, if I was Philly, I'd be trying to, even if it's working in like a Mike Scott sign-in trade or something, but I would be trying to work Harrison Barnes into that deal instead of Marvin Bagley. Um, mm. you felt you could get a third team involved with Marvin Bagley. The thing is with these three-team trades, they're great on the trade machine for guys like me and you. They very rarely work out in real life. Um, but yeah, there, there's certainly some potential there, uh, and I can certainly see that working. So, um, 
good creativity from you, Nika, and uh, and well done skating around Ben Simmons uh, potentially letting down the boomers as well. Um, safe to say, I've shed a few tears over that one already this week. So, um, my take is yes. also trade related, and you might feel uh opposed to this, Nick. Uh, in fact, you're in a great position to offer an opinion on it. I know the general media probably feel opposed to it. I can't help but feel like the Golden State Warriors should have traded that Wolves pick at the peak of its its powers when it looked like it might be a potentially a top three lottery pick this year upcoming before the Wolves started to right the ship at the end of the season. Mm. I would lean towards scorching with this one, Lou. I think particularly on a in, in, in a personal opinion, my question is, who should they have traded that pick for? Look, that is to a certain to a certain degree something I don't have an immediate answer to off the top of my head. But what I do know is they did have that Ubre contract this year, um, and you could have pieced that together with a couple of other deals um, or a couple of other fringe young guys. And I, I look at a guy and I threw him into a fake trade when we we're talking before. But look at a guy like Eric. Pascal, I don't think he's a fantastic fit in the Warriors roster moving forward, but I could see a team having a look at him, um, having having a sniff at that. So I just I feel that there was a point in time where the Wolves looked really, really desolate, mm. um, and it looked like they were going to be destined for probably the lottery, the top of the lottery, not just this year but next year as well. Um, and whilst mathematically for a rebuilding team, you might have gone the seventh pick is, is better, we'll keep it, we'll take it. I'm not sure that it has the same value to the Warriors. Um, and I feel like they could have flipped, let's say, Ubre and, uh, you know, the whatever salaries and, and that Wolves pick um, for, you know, I don't know whether you could have potentially poached someone like, OG Ananobi away from Toronto, um, someone like that, someone that's not quite an all-star, just below. Uh, as far as the most likelihood to win a, a championship while Steph, Draymond and Clay are in their uh, peak years, I'm just not sure you're getting a franchise guy at seven. And, and I think the window is obviously now gone on that to a certain extent. Yeah, I, it is a tough one because... I'm not too bad with pick seven, depending on what they do with it. But it really it really would have come down to sort of what they could get um, if they could really maximize that draft pick to really get somebody on board who could make an impact towards the back end of that season, you know? So they get, they get out of the playing tournament, they make a, you know, a run in this Western Conference that seems to have really split open to a degree. Certainly something that, you know, I think a lot of Golden State fans think that, you know, sort of, Wasted is a strong term, but certainly maybe scuppered the such a fantastic season from from Steph uh, and not being able to sort of get that um, going further um, with a postseason run. So, yeah, Ananobi is an interesting one. I think he'd be a good fit um, in Golden State, um, particularly uh, this season without Clay. Him and Wiggins in the, in those two wing spots would have been real quite. A bit, a bit of a nightmare, honestly, for a lot of teams uh, opposing wings to, to score on. So, yeah, someone like that would have been all right. Um, if they could get, yeah, if they could get some some scoring into that lineup, I think it would have been fantastic. But 
yeah, it's a, it's a hard one to gauge because it, it just I would have would have loved to hear some of the, you know, I guess, rumored trade packages that were floating around at the time. I think that one of the main things that kind of goes with this sort of uh, trading thing, and I've seen a lot of scenarios that have involved Golden State's picks getting traded. It's just that I don't want them to trade Andrew Wiggins at all. Um, he's someone who I understand that like his salary makes him a important piece in getting deals done for, you know, all-star level or fringe all-star players. But Wiggins has wholly convinced me that he's a person who needs to be there next season for the next couple of years um, in a Warriors uniform. So if a trade was getting involved, I'm not sure I would have been too happy if they parted ways with with uh, with Maple Jordan. But um, if, yeah, Ubre's contract was probably involved obviously the you know the, the jungle drums were beating quite loudly for him getting traded around the deadline and that didn't happen so yeah it obviously yeah it depends on what they would have got but I, I wouldn't have been super opposed to a trade um if they brought back someone in of a, of a high caliber yeah and i guess that's the thing we will never know some front officers are notoriously leaky yep. golden state warriors have done a pretty good job over the years of, of keeping the important moves under wraps um so, you know, I, I, I've got to respect them for doing that. Um, and, and, look, I guess we'll never know. And maybe they will take a franchise-altering guy at seven. Um, but to me, the odds that that guy contributes strongly to the uh, Steph Clay-Draymond attempts at a championship seem unlikely to me. Um, potentially, you know, these two, these two picks plus Wiseman plus a few of the other guys on that roster could form another generation of Warriors. And that's not to say they can't trade seven. Um there might be a guy there on draft night that a team really likes and they're willing to part ways with. Uh, but I, I tend to suspect that uh, they perhaps might have missed a window there. Um, but I would love for Golden State to pick someone that can contribute straight away and prove me wrong. It would have been interesting, I think. Um, one thing I did maybe think about is if pick seven is getting traded, do they look at sort of packaging that with, with James Wiseman to try to move up in the draft to get someone who potentially does come in and make a a serious impact. Um, I'm not sure how that would look and, and what the trade would look like, but that, that'd be something I'd be slightly interested in, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one because I, I don't know. I mean, look, the Cavs made it clear that their pick was to a certain extent for sale, but yep. I'm, I'm not sure whether Wiseman is super appetizing to them. I mean, the Cavs are just looking for talent in general, but if you're starting to play that fit game, you go, well, how much do they like Jared Allen? There's no way you'd play Allen and Wiseman together. They could just go, look, Allen's a restricted free agent, so we, we could move on from from him um, and give Wiseman a go. Uh, look, I don't think Houston and Detroit would, would move off for that package. Um, I could see Houston potentially taking the bait if it was Wiseman 7 and 14. Whether that's too steep of a price to pay, I don't know. Um I mean, Toronto is where it starts to get interesting. That was the one I was targeting a little bit. Yeah, and then I guess you start to go, look, who's on the board at four? And is that a guy that makes sense here in in Golden State? You know, if if Clay's a three moving forward, uh, you know, and someone like Green's on the board at four, uh, I could see that making sense. Uh, If if Mobley slips by some chance, um, he could be the guy, although then the Golden State are back in that same issue if they've got a a rookie big man and they're trying to win a championship. So uh, certainly want to keep an eye on, on draft night uh, and leading up to, and I wouldn't even be surprised if immediately afterwards. Um, so yeah, what one to one to have a look at and, uh, and certainly keep an eye on as we head towards that 
draft night. Now, before we get to the point of talking about rebuilding teams or teams looking to build through the draft, I, I think you have a, a take about the uh, the big LOB, uh, Nick. Uh, fire away for us here. Uh, this might not be as, as hot as it was uh, a couple of, of weeks ago, but I think that Phoenix have done enough to convince me in these opening two games that I do think that they are going to win the NBA championship this season. Um, I'm going to say lukewarm. Uh, if this was one week ago or definitely two or three weeks ago, I would have hit you with a scorching. Um, but I, I think it's funny. You, you started off by saying Phoenix have, have done enough to prove it to you. I think a certain extent to that as well is what's coming out of the East has done a lot yeah. to prove to me that they're, they're not as threatening. And it's, it's an interesting one. We won't talk about it too much because they're not in the Pacific Division, but this championship is sitting there for Milwaukee to make a run at. Um, it might be their best chance in, in Giannis's prime. Um, and look, it's funny, as much as I love the Hawks, and I, I'm going to keep writing them off as, as a team that could win the championship just because it doesn't feel right. It's just the nature of it. Um, so, so to me, I look, I don't know who the betting favourite is. I, I'd say probably the Suns, but I, I think you're certainly spot on. I think that's an 100% correct take. They've got to be the favourite at this point. Yeah, as you said, Lou, I think a lot of it does sort of as much as, you know, or obviously sort of the, the general consensus is uh, most people are picking Phoenix to get over the Clippers and get themselves into the finals. And I think that since Brooklyn have gone down, I think Milwaukee and Atlanta are just a little bit more gettable. I think that they've both shown some frailties that I think Phoenix can expose. Um, though I keep, I keep just expecting Atlanta just to sort of roll over and they don't. It's... That, that, that obviously that, that we don't chat too much about what's happening in the East, but what Trey Young and the Hawks are doing is quite mind-boggling, to be honest. It's as much as everyone's sort of getting around the the fairy tale side of Phoenix making a run for the championship. You know, Atlanta is certainly having their own uh, Cinderella story um, potentially to get their hands on a Larry O'Brien Trophy. So, yeah, a Phoenix Atlanta uh, finals would be a lot of fun. Um, I'd be very down for Devin Booker and Trey Young going at it for seven games. Um, but I think that if Paul coming back, this Phoenix roster seems to just every game show how little gaps it has. Um, you know, it's it, their depth is something I think that's been talked about at length, um, both by us and other people. It's just that. They just bat really deep. They're systematically a fantastic basketball team and well-coached um, by Monty Williams is something that probably doesn't get talked about enough. And as much as like the dominoes are falling sort of for, for Milwaukee to really get Giannis um, a ring, in, and as you said, probably one of the best chances they're going to get, I think the exact same thing's happening for Phoenix. It's just like the, you know, the sea's kind of parted for... Um, for them to come out of the West and really, really make a run at this championship, and I, I think that they can do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've actually gone and gone and checked in the interim here. Uh, Phoenix are the betting favorite, dollar ninety one. Wow. Um, Milwaukee two forty, Atlanta seven, and LA Clippers thirteen. I want to have a look at what Phoenix were paying at the start of the season. Yeah, well, uh, I don't think too many people would have betted that, particularly those that aren't Phoenix fans. But um, it. It just feels that particularly with Atlanta's win today, that that takeout Phoenix is, is ever more confirmed. Had Milwaukee come out and stomped Atlanta today, yeah. 
you could have made a case. And look, if it is Milwaukee Phoenix in the finals, I'm still not 100% sure. I'd, 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 you know, bet the house on Phoenix. Um, but I mean, Aiton, Aiton's really starting to give me some belief that he could potentially be the guy to guard Giannis in those finals as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at this point, I kind of hinted at it with my take last week. I think it's almost really got to be considered a failure if they don't win it. So, so me and you are very much aligned over the last couple of weeks here and say, look, Phoenix, you been great it's been a fairy tale it's been a lot of fun um but you guys are now going to look at this and go they always say your window is shorter than you think it is in the nba and you know if i'm devin booker if i'm deandre eight and now's the chance to secure your legacy at a young age um because you never know what's going to happen there's a lot of guys on this phoenix roster that are going to expect to be paid uh whether it's this season or next season you can't keep all these guys forever uh chris paul is going to age it's, it's inevitable it's going to happen um so so Seize the, seize the day, as far as I'm concerned, for the Suns, because uh, this might be the easiest run they're going to have as much as they've fought for it and earned this position. Their odds, because um, they have them in the sort of like plus number, they were plus 4,051-21 over. Um, they had better odds than New Orleans, Atlanta, Indiana, Washington, Memphis, Mini. OKC, Orlando, Chicago, Charlotte, Sacramento, San Antonio, New York, Cleveland, and Detroit. Teams that were paying better odds than them for the championship include Houston are almost a little bit closer. Granted, they no one knew that James Harden was going to leave. Better paying sides in the, in the in the preseason odds were Portland, Utah, Dallas, Philly, Toronto, Golden State, Denver, Miami, paying a, a pretty crazy amount of money your Celtics, the Clippers, the Nets, the Bucks, and then the Lakers. So fair play, Phoenix, and fair play to anyone who had a bit of a wager and put a bit of money on them. So it might be uh, might be pretty rich and uh, be getting yourselves all of the Valley jerseys uh, in your wardrobe. So it is an interesting one. And, uh, yeah, very excited to sort of see you know, what happens with this Phoenix side. They're able to sort of take that next step and, yeah, go from, uh, you know, an, a, an admirable playoff run to you know something that ends in a bit of ends in a bit of silverware. So your second take, uh, Lou, you alluded to before um, in regards to a certain big man who's uh, had a, an interesting career um, that we could say that much. Um, hit us with it. What do we got? So look, if Enos Cantor is captain of the. Gives you 10 minutes, gets a whole bunch of points and rebounds, looks good on the box score, but really, really hurts your team while he's out there first team. Then DeMarcus Cousins has got to be the vice captain because every single time he's played in this playoffs, he's come in, his box score numbers look oddly good. If you're actually watching the games, he's like the first 40 seconds he's out there. Then the opposition realizes he's out there and he's bad. Uh, and look, I love the comeback story. I love the second comeback story. I've even enjoyed bits of this third comeback story. But don't be fooled, folks. Boogie is done. Doesn't mean he's put up his last points or his last rebound in the NBA. This guy is just done as an effective player in the league. Um, and I uh, don't listen to the box score because he's just so bad defensively at this point that uh, he's uh, he's contributed his last valuable postseason minutes, at least in the NBA. Whew. I think I'm going to sit on lukewarm on this one. I think a lot of people might be not as quick to dismiss uh, DeMarcus's contributions on a championship team, but I'm of uh, very much in your your 
you know, school of thought, Lou, that um, the minutes he is out there are just a, a roller coaster, a train wreck, um, a car crash. I'm not sure how you describe these cousins cameos that are, are happening in playoff games. Um, that he, yeah, he's out there for ten minutes. He might score eleven points, but he'll probably get fouled out in those ten minutes. And he got a technical after the game for, for shoving Devin Booker. And it's just like, it feels so far removed from that time when him and Anthony Davis were twin towers in New Orleans and things were all looking rosy for both of those players. And now Boogie's been on, what, two teams since then, three teams since then. Four, this is his fourth team since then. Bloody hell. Two LA teams, Golden State Warriors, and then a, a little little run in Houston. So I think that I think he'll find his way onto a roster next year as a third or fourth pick. But I 100% agree that what he's, he's he's never been the best defender in the world. He's been a good shot blocker, um, but as like a positional defender, he'd be someone you can take advantage of a little bit. And the reality is, is since his injuries, his athleticism, which was quite amazing for a guy of his size has rapidly waned and it's been pretty tricky to watch. Um, Boogie someone who I've always really liked watching on the basketball court, but you're right. The, the times that we're going to see him contributing, um, you know, in a playoff game late, uh, you know, we're seeing slim minutes at the moment. I think they're only going to get slimmer. Yeah. And I think if a Barker was healthy, we would have seen yeah. pretty much zero minutes unless Tyloo felt like, throwing someone out there for some fouls because um, Boogie would certainly give you that. Um, but, you know, I've said it before on this podcast, uh, whenever I've thrown shade at people like that, prove me wrong, Boogie. Um, happy to be proven wrong. So I'll stand by that one until the evidence shows me otherwise. Uh, on a positive note, moving to the Avica Zubac, unsung hero of the week. Nick, who do you have for us? Uh, well, both of us have gone Phoenix-related, which is understandable, um, given the way uh, the Pacific Division is uh, is uh, in inning out at the moment. But my Avita uh, Zubats uh, award winner for this week could have gone to Big Zubes. So I didn't think he was too bad in game two. Uh, but my guy um, Dario Saric um, is my Zubes award winner um, for the week. I think that his uh, small ball minutes. Um, particularly, I think it was in the second quarter when he really got a bit of run. Um, I thought he played with great energy, had some key rebounds and some important baskets, finished with 11 points, three boards and two assists. Um, he really got eaten up in the LA series and played off the court, really. Um, he was someone who is really, it's probably lost a little bit now considering probably how his role's got a little bit more diminished in the playoffs. But it was a really massive reason why this Phoenix side got to the second seed in the Western Conference. Um, you know, I think at one stage, the, I'm pretty sure Kevin O'Connor mentioned him as like a six-man-of-the-year candidate, someone he would be voting for. So I think that his second half of the season, you know, sort of might have waned a little bit. But it's, I think he's still really important for what he can um, for what he can give this Phoenix side. You know, someone who can space the floor a little bit. He's not the biggest guy um, to be chucking out there at the five, but he bangs away and tries. And... Um, He's just—he's a pretty smart basketball player. So, um, 
someone who probably haven't talked about a lot um, over the last few weeks in this Phoenix playoff run deserves a bit of love. So Dario Saric is uh, is my Zubes uh, award winner of the week. Yeah, that's a tremendous shout. Uh, I mean, we touched on it a little bit during the regular season. He was fantastic, uh, particularly when he was healthy in those bench minutes at five. Um, sneaky good playmaker. He's one of those guys that was funny because he came into the league as like almost a three. And now picturing him playing anything other than five or maybe spot minutes at the four just feels off. But um, he he spaces the floor when he's out there to a certain extent. Um, and look, there it's actually worth saying, there are very few backup centers that actually survive in the playoffs. So mm-hmm. many of these backup centers become pretty much unusable. Uh, and so the fact that he's been able to contribute for Phoenix um, has been really invaluable. And look, he, he's still got a role ahead of him as well. Um, if they get uh, if they get through to the finals, if it's Bobby Porter, so he, you could go a bit of offense, offense in the backup units there and see if Saric can outplay Portis from Milwaukee. Um, and I could certainly see Saric feasting inside against some, some spot Atlanta bench minutes, maybe against a rookie, you know, a Neka or Conwu, uh, if it's the Hawks. So, yeah, shout out to you, Dario. Does a little bit of everything. Got to love a guy that does a little bit of everything. Um, typical Euro on the defensive end. Uh, but we don't mind. So shout out to you, Dario. You've, uh, you've certainly been an unsung hero. And your winner for this week, Lou, uh, you've gone with not a player this week. Uh, hit us with it. Well, I've gone with a former player, but he's not in here for his uh, his playing days, that's for sure. Um, he probably should have been uh, given more credit to this point. And I think it's finally starting to come due. And I think... To a certain extent, Chris Paul got some of the credit that this guy probably deserved. But my Avica Zubac unsung hero of the week is Phoenix Suns coach Monty Williams. Do you give it to him uh, if that end of game play doesn't happen? (sighs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Apparently to our listeners. We're starting to get to a point of the playoffs where... (laughs) <laughs> I've a lot of the Phoenix roster, and the Clippers went out two this week. So we're doing the mascots next week. But I was I was literally going to go CP3's uh, FaceTime account was my was my second unsung role. So um, <laughs> look, shout out to him for for backing in Jay Crowder to make that absurd pass. Um, I love the play he did run because um, even if uh, even if they did do a bad job of. Uh, of scramming out of that Devin Booker semi-legal screen, then you could have got Booker popping open for a little jumper as well. Um, so to be that creative, to be one of the one of the guys that's aware enough to know, hey, look, there's no goal, there's no offensive goaltending on an inbounds pass. Um, so yeah, Monty Williams has been fantastic though all year. Uh, he's deserved his roses for a long time. We like to mainly look after the guys that get the work done on the court here, and rightfully so. Um, but no doubt in my mind, this Phoenix team wouldn't be where they are without Monty at the steering wheel. Um, so he's been fantastic. And uh, another fairy tale story as well for a guy getting another chance in the NBA. Yeah, I think that um, as much as we sort of romanticize this uh, journey of Chris Paul um, to a, a, made in, a made in NBA championship, I think that the the resurrection of Monty Williams' career is, is equally aligned, um, you know, with um, his a, a guy that um, that – that coach Paul, um, obviously in a much earlier stint in, in, in both of their NBA careers. So um, it's kind of nice to see them back together and intertwined on this journey to potentially a championship. So, um, yeah, I think his play calling was fantastic. He's made really good decisions right throughout the playoffs. Um, not even just that last um, lob into Aiton. I think that the the play that they 
they got Mikhail Bridges open. He missed the three, but, you know, good play design. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that what he's done has really maximized um, a, a really a really fantastic roster um, devised by James Jones in the, in the Phoenix front office. But uh, Monty's been the right guy uh, to lead um, this side. And, you know, if, if they get a championship, um, seeing him lift that trophy is going to be a really fantastic sight. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and it's worth noting he obviously actually turned down the Lakers job before Frank Vogel did. And this time last year, that choice might have seemed a bit silly. But now he has a chance to go get one himself. Um, so good luck to you, Monty, in your quest. And uh, Nick, it's worth noting, while we have come to the end of our episode, by this time next week, there could be one remaining Pacific Division team. So... It's perhaps the most important week in Pacific Division basketball. Uh, some part of me hopes we still have a series on our hands by this time next week. Um, but either way, we'll be here to cover everything that happens uh, as well as a, a finals preview regardless because that's right, there will be a Pacific Division team in the finals. So looking forward to recapping that one with you next week and uh, to reuniting with our listeners, Nick. We'll see you then.